finding a way to forgive. Second Corinthians chapter two, verses five through 11. Again, big picture. We're looking at trying to find strength in suffering. All of us here today, and some of us, our family that's not here today, they're facing many challenges. And one of the ways that you navigate your way through suffering is to know that you are forgiven and to forgive those who have offense against you. And that will help you navigate suffering. So big picture, uh, take that with you as well. All right, verse 5. This is King James to get started with, and we'll switch over to NIV in just a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, uh, Paul writes, he says, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many, so that contrariwise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. What a great verse. Verse 9. For to this end also I did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. In verse 11, a very important verse for us today lest Satan should get an advantage of us. We are not ignorant of his devices. All right? Don't take forgiveness for granted. This is kind of a little humorous illustration to get us thinking about forgiveness this morning. This is from Jane Vamar. My friend's four boys were young, and they were bursting with energy, especially in church. But the sermon her minister preached on turning the other cheek got their undivided attention. The minister stressed that no matter what others do to us, we should never try to get even. Well, that afternoon, the youngest boy came into the house crying. Between sobs, he told his mom he had kicked one of his other brothers who had kicked him back in return. Well, I'm sorry you're hurt, his mother said, but you shouldn't go around kicking people. To which the cheerful child replied, but the preacher said he isn't supposed to kick me back. <laughs> right? Is that how forgiveness works? These are the, he didn't know the rules, did he? If I kick him, he can't kick me back. He's supposed to turn the other cheek. Uh, I, as I go along in my faith, and I look back sometimes, I see where uh, I have assumed grace from other people. You should be gracious to me. You should be kind to me. I deserve that, right? And we know now that from the Scripture very clearly that is not the case. Have you been forgiven today? Praise the Lord. His mercy is more, right? Stronger than darkness, new every morn. <laughs> Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Those words are so good, aren't they? Right? And that's our message here today is that you can have forgiveness. If you're battling today a struggle, a temptation, we talked about in our Sunday school lesson today. Brother Rick did a great job reminding us facing uh, temptation. We can find forgiveness, but also today what we want to look at in the context of church discipline that we would give and grant forgiveness. The first thing I want to start with this morning is kind of a touchy subject a little bit, but we're going to work our way through it. And you guys, again, trust the Lord, hear his voice and not mine. But we want to look again in verse 5. We're going to look at this truth here this morning that sometimes punishment is a necessity or is necessary. 
this is a hard truth. And I think even the King James uses the word punishment. Uh, even in our parenting styles today, it's almost like that's a dirty word, isn't it, right? We don't use the word punishment. We only talk about discipline. And they kind of go together a little bit today. And I want you to see, again, not from my words, but from the Lord's words. Let's see if we can figure out what's going on and maybe how we can be obedient ourselves. Sometimes punishment is a necessity. So look down, if you would, again, in verse 5. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, he says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Is sufficient. Uh, to get to the right place, sometimes we need discipline in order to get to true forgiveness. And consequences obviously do follow our actions. So what we're going to look at here in just a second, and if you want to flip over there, you can to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at an incident that was happening in the Corinthian church. And Paul says, well, yeah, that, that grieves me as a missionary, as a person who has developed and built, started this church in Corinth. That bothers me about the sin of this person. But really, that's a, that's a sin against all of you. And sometimes it's a difficult thing to think about, but as a, if we're a really healthy church and a healthy body, a healthy family, when we sin against the Lord, it's not just about us and the Lord, is it? You might say the, the leaders or the preacher, whenever they sin, and that, of course, that affects the reputation of the church. But you realize if we're a healthy family, if you are sinning against the Lord, that doesn't just affect you. That affects other people, right? It brings heartache to them. It brings hurt to them. And for some people, it may, for their own temptation, it may hurt their resistance against that temptation. And especially for our young guys and gals, right? We want them to see how we battle. We don't, we're not trying to paint a picture that we're perfect, but we want them to see that we wrestle with temptation and that we overcome together. And when we continually fall, or if we fall and then don't act like what we're doing is wrong, we become a poor example for our church family. It's a sin against us all, not just a sin between us and God. And that's what Paul kind of starts out today. Well, let's look at the situation that was going on. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if I'm understanding this right, I think in 2 Corinthians 5, what Paul is referring to is from his first letter, there was a problem. There were many problems in the, first, in the church there at Corinth. But I think he's specifically referring to this problem. Uh, parents, you may have to explain some of this to your kids a little later, but I think you'll get the idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans, a man and his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. What strong language, right? So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast 
as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. And look what he says right here. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. And you thought this was going to be a real upbeat, happy message, right? <laughs> it will get there, I hope, okay? But what we see here is there's a problem in the church. There's a sin in the church. There's immorality in the church. And what is happening is the church has kind of taken a super tolerant stand. And they're almost proud of their tolerance. Oh, yeah, we accept everyone here. Whatever your activity is, that's okay. We'll be accepting. We're proud of that here. <laughs> and what does Paul say? No. I would say it real loud. I didn't want to scare everybody. You look like you're kind of asleep right now. What's he say? Expel the wicked brother from among you. Hand him over to Satan that his spirit may be saved. When's the last time you heard the preacher tell our church family that we need to hand over someone in the church to Satan? Whoa, right? And here's what I think in our society, what we, we have, and it's invaded the church, and in some ways, there can be a tolerance that is a good tolerance, but it, when it invades the church where we no longer call sin, sin, and we no longer call truth, truth, then we have this problem that the Corinth church has, right? And so they, are, they have become so open and proud of it, and Paul says, we're going to call sin, sin, and we're going to call truth, truth, and to do that, we need to discipline our brothers and sisters. Let me just say this morning that church discipline is extremely difficult, and it's impossible to be consistent. Parents, do you treat both of your children, or all of, I say both of my children, do you treat your children the same way? Some of you have only children, so then that's easy, right? Wendy and Dasha, you, you, only, have to, you only treat them one way, right, Esther? So there's no comparison, okay? But for Brooklyn and Isaiah, you can ask Wendy, do we treat them the same way? For Brooklyn, we would tell her to go sit in the corner, and that was the worst thing that could ever happen to her. She was very obedient, so she would go sit in her little chair when she was in trouble and sit in her corner, and she'd be alone, and she just hated it. And so that was a great punishment. Isaiah, we would tell him to go sit in the corner, and about 30 seconds later, if that long, he'd be up out of the chair walking around, and he didn't care and whatever, right? And just to be in the corner, he might tap around and play with his toy, whatever he was trying to do. He was always – it didn't work. The corner was not – the thing, right? So to try to, to have consequences for them, 
might look really different because their personalities are really different. And the offenses that they did are different, right? Is uh, anybody else in this room besides the preacher a sinner? Right, okay. And so do we go around like looking for your sins so that we can highlight your problems and tell the church and try to kick you out? <laughs> Some churches may do that, all right? That is not our desire. We're not trying to hunt down your flaws and your sins, but here's the big but. When there is a public sin in a church community, it needs to be addressed. We saw this even in our Wednesday night Bible study, especially about the preacher. Now, you better have two or three witnesses, right? Not on one person's word, but at the same time, if there is a public sin from a public leader, there needs to be a public calling out of that sin. Okay? And so a church here that was proud of their tolerance, Paul is condemning it and saying, we need to call this out. This is a problem that we need to deal with. And then he says something I think is really interesting. He says, with such a person, do not even what? Eat. I remember we had a Sunday school discussion with some ladies one day in here, and they thought that was just a little over the top. I'm like, the Word of God says here, you are to break fellowship. Now, did you catch the clarification? Because some people would use this passage and say, oh, well, I'm not going to associate with anybody who is immoral or anybody who's a swindler, anybody who is greedy, anybody who's a drunkard. I'm not even going to hang around those people. And what's Paul say to that? No! <laughs> hang around those people. Are you listening close? If you're not, you're going to miss it today. The people outside the church, we don't judge them. Those people need Jesus. They are immoral. They are greedy. They are swindlers. They are idolaters. Such were some of you and me, right? That's who we were before Christ. So we need to associate with those people. And I think for a long time, the church that I grew up in, they really emphasized separating from those people. But Paul says, be with those people. But the problem becomes when someone in the church says, I love the Lord. I love Jesus but I'm going to keep my sins and hang on to them, then that needs to be addressed. Again, not my words today. The Scripture says if a brother or sister who is actively part of the local church, but they are a drunkard or they are a swindler or they are an idolater or they are immoral and they are not penitent or repentant about those things, but they flaunt their freedom, then they need to be disciplined. Wow. Right? Am I tracking with that? Again, so much today, not my words at all, not my opinions. That is what Paul is telling the church at Corinth. So he lays that out to them in that first book that he writes to them. What he is hoping, though, for, what is really important here, is he is not trying to punish these people to kick them out so they never come back. What's he doing? He's disciplining them for their good. The point is that hopefully... When you encounter this pressure from your church family, you'll recognize, look at yourself, see your sin and repent, and then be restored, right? I don't know if you, any of you have ever been part of church discipline, but it is one of the hardest things for a leader to do. It is really tough because you don't always get the results you hope for. Sometimes when you push on someone's sin, you point out the scriptures to them, you're really clear about that, they never return. But sometimes... In the Lord's timing, someone will finally get an awakening like, oh boy, 
this whole community of believers is actually trying to teach me a lesson and their eyes are open and they seek the Lord. Now, I'm not doing a whole lesson on church discipline today. If you want to look in Matthew 18, you can kind of see how Jesus prescribes that, how those things should proceed. And again, I hope you hear me out today. We're not out here looking with glasses to see what everybody's doing wrong. It's so funny. One of your preacher's main jobs at schools is I do suspicious search queries. You want to know what suspicious search queries are? You guys probably know, don't you? Anybody that is on a Chromebook or an iPad or a computer, when they go on our school network, so we have about 10,000 students, about 2,000 teachers, about 12,000 people, all of their searches are logged. And there are searches that if they have certain words or phrases in them, they get flagged like suicide or drugs or all kinds of sexual things. And then guess where those search terms go to? Your poor preacher has to read all this smut and filth every day from our district. <laughs> and I work my way through and I try to identify if it's actually like to kill a mockingbird or to kill myself. And the one I say, oh, that's not important. And the other I send on to the administrator. And so I'm actually getting to see a little bit about what's in people's minds. Now, what's so funny is some people think because I do that job that all I do is sit and read and look for where people are messing up. And I don't do that all. The computer just sends me a few things I look through and I pass them on, all right? And we try to tell people, we don't have time to sit around looking for the bad things you're doing. And here at church, I hope you understand the same thing. None of us have time to be looking at your life all the time to see where you mess up. We're not, we don't want you to mess up. We're hoping for your growth. But if you make a public display like this man here did with his father's wife, then that is going to be addressed. And even in our church, if we have to, if you are claiming to be a brother or sister, but you are flaunting something that is contrary, clearly contrary to the word of God, that's going to have to be addressed. And so that's what happened here at Corinth. All right. So everybody kind of tracking with that. Sometimes punishment, it is necessary. But what we're looking for is discipline that leads to repentance and that ultimately leads to forgiveness. Again, you know these things, but if you have been hurt today, you're going to need the grace of the Lord to forgive. And if you need forgiveness today, come to the Lord and he walks and waits with open arms for you. All right. Second thing this morning, punishment in church should be discipline and not destruction. So Paul is writing here in 2 Corinthians about this same incident, but let's look at what he says now about that incident. You saw his harsh words the first time around, right? Look in verse 7. Now instead, you ought to what? Forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, what? Reaffirm your love for him. Okay, now, again, this is a little bit of penology here, reading through the lines. So you guys check it out. We don't have the whole picture here, but here's what I imagine that happened. Whenever Paul sent the first letter, the church leadership got together and they said, oh boy, Paul is right on this one. This person who is flaunting their immorality in our community and in our church community, they're going to have to be dealt with. So here's what we're going to do. For a time, we are going to separate ourselves from this brother. We're going to reach out to them. We're going to say clearly, here's what the scripture says. Uh, we're going to invite them to repent. If they don't, we're going to bring other leadership in and we're going to say, hey, a couple people here bringing, this is not just one person's uh, problem with you. This is our church problem with you. 
And then ultimately, they're going to all come together. And as a church, we're going to make a decision to not even eat with this person. Man, that is strong, isn't it, right? Could you imagine some of the people in the church? Well, every Tuesday, we go down to Starbucks, have a coffee. You mean I can't do that? Every, every Friday night, we go out and have a burger at such and such place. Don't, don't, shouldn't we stay connected so we can still have influence on them? Which that seems like a good policy, right? Paul says, as a church, we're going to send a message to them that, look, until you get this right, you're not going to be a part of our fellowship. What do you think that would do to the person on the other end, right? The person who had sinned. That could go one of two ways, can't it, right? It can be like, oh, those people, they think they're better than me. Well, I'll teach them. I'll never show them. Or it could be like the people that I love to be with and I love to hang around, they won't be around me right now because of what they're showing me in the Scripture and my sin. I've got a decision to make. And so Paul brings this up here, and he says, after a time, again, your preacher reading into this a little bit, now instead you ought to do what? You ought to forgive and comfort him so that he'll not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And what your preacher, again, would see in this passage, you guys check this out, I think what would happen is you have a penitent heart in this person, and now it's time for someone who has very publicly been judged to be brought back and encouraged. Even that would be tough, wouldn't it, right? Look what he says here. Again, the idea, first thing is forgive. You ought to for, forgive. In a Calvin and Hobbes, a cartoon character, Calvin says it to his tiger friend Hobbes. He says, I feel bad that I called Susie names and I hurt her feelings. I'm sorry I did it. Hobbes says, well, maybe you should apologize to her. Calvin ponders this for a moment and replies, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. <laughs> and, and what I want you to think about today is that the obvious solution is to repent and then to forgive. But the problem in our current society is they don't see that there's any sin. So there's no need for repentance because there's no sin. No sin, no repentance, no forgiveness. And then we have chaos. Any wonder? Right? What the scriptures are calling out very clearly is that sin should be repented of. And when it's repented of, God says, I will grant forgiveness. So hear that out this morning, all right? If you are needing forgiveness, it may need to be that you need to repent. Maybe you're looking for a less obvious solution, right? How can I keep my sin but still keep my relationships? We all kind of would like that, right? I want to keep my temptation. I want to keep my sin, but I still want to have all my good friends that I love to be around and hang around at church. And that's the problem in this situation. There will be times in our lives when forgiveness needs to be given regardless of whether a heart is repentant or not. Jesus, obviously, right? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But here, I believe in this passage, we see forgiveness following a repentant heart. For us to find forgiveness, we must repent. We must be honest with God and the ones we have hurt. And then and only then will you find true forgiveness. I'm by no means am I an expert in Alcoholics Anonymous and that plan, but it is all about forgiveness. If any of you have ever had to wrestle through those 12 steps and understand them, it's such a perfect picture of forgiveness. And it has its, in the steps, there's a place of confession. It's actually you go to the people that you have wronged and you name the wrongs you have done to them. You're specific and you're clear and you say, this is how I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Whether they forgive or not is up to them. 
But part of finding forgiveness is being clear about the ways you have offended other people. And today, part of finding forgiveness is being clear to God about the ways that you have offended him. Can you hear me out today? This, yeah, this is so important. Salvation is not just saying, um, Lord, come into my life, and I, I'll still do things I want to do, but I just want you to be with me. <laughs> what is salvation? Where does it begin? Where does faith begin? Repentance, very literally, means to turn. It's a 180-degree turn. I was headed toward the devil. I was headed towards hell. I was headed full of myself. Repentance says turn. And that turn of repentance now becomes faith. You can see repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, right? We love to talk about faith because that's a positive and uplifting thing, but we also need to remind people that in order to have faith, you have to repent. There is no faith without repentance. There has to be a turning. We have to confess is what the Scripture calls it. That means we agree with God about what He calls sin. In our community today, they don't even want to call anything sin. And that's why we come to church and try to remind ourselves and study the Word of God together is the Bible is still really clear that there are things that are so clearly laid out that are sin. They're wrong for us. Not only wrong, they are hurtful to who we can be. They're going to decrease our joy. God has given us these True, so that we can have a life that is full of joy. Again, we need to forgive the penitent. Uh, and again, hear me out this morning. Too many times I pray that we have killed the injured in our churches. Okay, What can happen is somebody uh, has a, a sin or makes a fall in our church, and it's almost like we're, we're celebrate that. Oh, I caught you messing up. Right? You're in trouble. Don't you come back here. We only have good, perfect people in our church. We don't have messed up people. Amen? If you're a sinner, you better get out of here. And there was a time where we would highlight those things, and it would be such an unforgiving attitude about that. That's not at all what we're talking about here today. Today we're talking about discipline that produces repentance that ultimately reveals real forgiveness. Okay? So don't get those things confused this morning. Again, we need to be quick to help. And today, don't forget, we already talked about this when we started. You've been forgiven, amen? A load. <laughs> and so you can forgive a little because we've been forgiven so much. All right, forgive. Comfort instead of compare. This is one of your preacher's big problems. Sometimes people don't need another take on their situation. They just need some hugs. Pray for discernment that you may give comfort at the right time. You've had a problem, you've got a situation going on in your life, and you may come talk to the preacher, and all of a sudden the preacher wants to analyze everything. That's a problem sometimes for me, and I need to follow the Holy Spirit. There's a time to analyze. There's a time to give advice. But there's sometimes, and in this situation here where the brother has already been disciplined, that now the restoration for it to happen, they need to be comforted. Do you remember where we started in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Paul says, I can comfort you because I have the comfort I have received, right? And here he's using that same idea, that same phraseology, that same definition, comfort. We need to comfort those who have repented and who are pursuing Christ, even if they're still tripping along the way. Anybody here still tripping? Right? Anybody here still stumbling a little bit? <laughs> right? Anybody here lose their temper, lose their cool, uh, want something more than they should have, uh, chase after the wrong thing this last week maybe, make a... A decision that wasn't so great? Yes. 
There's people along the way. We're still, all of us are still falling down, but what we're trying to do is get up and help each other up and keep going the right direction, all right? Comfort instead of compare. Again, he uses these phrases, prevent excessive sorrow. If we fail to forgive, we may damage the soul for which Christ died. If all we ever want to do is remember this person's public sin and we hold it against them for the rest of their life, what have we done? We may destroy them. Can you hear me out today? This is why this is so tricky, right? If you call out a public sin, you could be labeling someone that that's all they're ever be known for. And in our society, that's the case, isn't it, right? You could do a lifetime's work of great things and you have one big significant failure and what happens? We take down your statue. We get rid of your job. We eradicate you from social media. We cancel you because of your sin. And any of the other good things that you did, they're all washed away, right? And our church can't be that way, right? We know that people are going to fall down and, and have failures. We need to identify those things where they're wrong, where they go against God's word, but we need to bring comfort and love. And especially here, we need to prevent that excessive sorrow. We need to be quick to encourage and quick to, to lift up. And when I love the NIV, the word it has here is reaffirm. We need to reaffirm your love. You ever reaffirm your love? Brooklyn would really be upset with me. I've already used her once in illustration today. <laughs> My daughter, uh, she lives in Nashville, and so she's five hours away. And it's a long way away. It was really funny because we went camping this weekend together a little bit. And as soon as she drove up where I could see her car, I could see where she needed to park. And I was like, oh, be careful. You need to be careful where you're driving. Don't hit that, don't run into that bump. She's driven for whatever, six, eight, ten years now. Um, and she gets along. She makes it. Now, she does have her problems. Don't, don't get me wrong on that. <laughs> but whenever she comes in my presence, what happens to me? This little, oh, be careful. Oh, and that's how I've been way too much in her life was, I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you to mess up. I don't want you to tear up the car. You know, go this way. And, and so I'm correcting, right? Um, but what is good about times like we had this weekend is it was a time for me to reaffirm my love for her. I mean, I'm busy. I got schoolwork to do. I got church work to do. She's got a really important job and she's got all kinds of things she could be doing. She has friends there. We could just say, oh, maybe we'll see you at Christmas or maybe every other Christmas. But in order for that relationship to be what it needs to be, what do I need to do? I need to reaffirm my love, right? When somebody falls in our church, and you guys, this is so real. I wish I could just shout this from the mountaintops. There are some people in our church that when they fail, they feel like everybody just sees their failure and they almost have a hard time being present in this community because they think that's what everybody sees and they think that nobody loves them because of their failure. Are you hearing me out today? What's Paul say that we need to do? Reaffirm your love, especially when someone falls down. Probably the first thing when somebody falls, we ought to do is say, hey, I love you. I know you're in a tough spot and I want to see if I can encourage you, but I want you to know no matter what happens, I love you. And for my own daughter, which we've been finding out all kinds of political disagreements when we talk politics a little bit. <laughs> but what I want to make sure of is that no matter all of the political disagreements, that she always knows I love her. And we need that in our church family. And I think we have that, but you guys have to help and identify that. If you see somebody that feels like that they're failing and they just can't even be present, reaffirm your love for them. That's what Paul says. Okay, this morning, simply, who do you need to forgive? 
Who do you need to comfort? Who should you be reaffirming? All right, let's finish up. Look at passing the test down in verse 9. Paul says, the reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Remember the first phrase, the first paragraph we just read, right? If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. But we are not unaware of his schemes. So we need to be obedient to the point of discipline. That is a really important thing. But again, we're talking about people's public sins, not their private ones. Private sins dealt with privately. But we need to be obedient even when it hurts. That's tough. We must forgive even as we have been forgiven. Again, Paul was putting them to the test to see what they would do. If you don't forgive, what happens to you? When you don't forgive someone, is it like you're trying to stick it to them? You don't shake their hand. You don't smile. Maybe it's a coworker. You just like, oh, I'm walking by you with the mean eyes, and I hope you feel it because I'm not forgiving you. You ever done that? This is a pretty good picture of what uh, not forgiving can do. A teacher once told her students to bring a clear plastic bag and, and a sack of potatoes to school. They were instructed to call to mind every person they had a grudge against. For every person they refused to forgive, they chose a potato they wrote on it the name and the date, and they put it in the plastic bag. They were told to carry this bag with them everywhere, putting it beside their bed at night, on the car seat when driving, on their lap when riding, next to their desk during classes. Well, some bags became quite heavy, lugging this around, paying attention to it all the time, and remembering not to leave it in embarrassing places was a hassle. Over time, the potatoes became moldy and smelly, and they began to sprout eyes. Often we think of forgiveness as a gift to the other person, but clearly it is a gift to ourselves. How many potatoes are you carrying around with you? Right? I should have titled the sermon that. <laughs> How many potatoes are you carrying around with you? Oh, you lay down in bed at night and all you can think about is, I can't believe they did that to me. I just hope that God gets even with them. You see them the next day at work or at your neighbor, and maybe they're mowing too far in your yard or they're, not treating things right, and you're like, oh, I just hope they get what's coming to them. And you keep lugging those burdens around, and they get heavy, and they get moldy, and they get stinky, and in our life, they get bitter, don't they, right? And where there should be a heart of joy is this toxic, bitter, worn out, and it doesn't affect them. It kills us. Today, we need to forgive so that we can be at peace with the Lord. Now, again, real quickly here at the end, you can see Paul brought this out in that verse. He says, in order that Satan might not outwitness, outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Do you guys realize today the devil would like to tear us apart? He would love it. He'd be glad to take down any church, any local church that's healthy, that's striving to serve and honor God, that's trying to preach truth, that's trying to clearly say that we need to repent so there can be forgiveness. The devil would love to destroy that. Literally, a being, spiritual being, will love to destroy a healthy church that points to the truth. He would love to divide us by our own judgmental spirits, and that's how he does it, right? Remember at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, what was going on? Well, we're going to follow this guy. We're going to follow this guy. Well, we're going to follow Jesus, right? Let's divide. Let's conquer. The devil would put us against each other. So we have to work just as hard at unifying the body of Christ at the same time upholding the truth. 
of sin needs to be repented of. And those things go together. We have to be alert, and we have to be careful that we don't develop a critical spirit. We need to encourage, and again today I would just challenge you, we need to affirm. And please hear me out today. We all bring our own hurts to the table, right? So be careful, especially if you've had a, I've had a pretty sheltered life, so I really have to be careful. I don't always understand what other people that are coming, the hurts that they've been through. I want to close with just one final illustration today that reminds us that of people that really need to find forgiveness. And maybe this is you today, or maybe it's just somebody you know, but would you pray even as you hear this story about what you can do to either find forgiveness or help someone find forgiveness who is hurting? Based on a true story, the film Antoine Fisher tells of a young man who grew up in an abusive foster home. Over the years, Antoine grew bitter towards his natural family for giving him up. By the time he enlisted in the Navy, his anger got him into so many fistfights that he was sent to Navy psychologist Jerome Davenport, who became sort of a father figure to Antoine. After they had built trust with each other, Antoine would share a powerful poem with Davenport. And at this crucial juncture, his counselor raises the key issue that Antoine must deal with to find healing. The conversation takes place just after a Thanksgiving meal at his counselor's house. And Antoine gives Davenport a folded piece of paper. And then his counselor reads it aloud thoughtfully. So hear this poem. Antoine Fisher writes this. Who will cry for the little boy lost and all alone? Who will cry for the little boy abandoned without his own? Who will cry for the little boy who cried himself to sleep? Who will cry for the little boy who never had for keeps? Who will cry for the little boy who walked the burning sand? Who will cry for the little boy, the boy inside the man? Who will cry for the little boy who knew well hurt and pain? Who will cry for the little boy who died and died again? Who will cry for the little boy, a good boy he tried to be? Who will cry for the little boy who cries inside a man? There's some people that long, long ago hurts are still there. And they need that reaffirming love. They need that comfort. They need that deliverance that we can give by encouragement. The counselor says, He goes, this is excellent, Antoine. You're good because you're honest. You're more honest than most people. Even in your anger, the only thing you're not honest with yourself about is your need to find your own family, your natural family. You're upset with them because you felt they didn't come to your rescue, and maybe they didn't know. And Antoine replies bitterly, how could they not have known? Davenport says, that's a question you need to ask. Regard without ill will, despite an offense. That's Webster's definition of forgiveness. And Antoine says this, why do I have to forgive? And Davenport answers, to free yourself <laughs> so you can get on with your life. That's forgiveness, right? Today, maybe you need to get on with your life. Maybe there's some bitterness wrapped up in there. Maybe today there's a hurt inside that's deep and you can hear the Lord speaking to you again, I love you. And today, maybe there's somebody that you know, maybe it's one of your own family members who is hurting and they need to have your reaffirming love visit them. You can pray about that. Today, I would just encourage us to ask the Lord for the power to forgive and even the power to ask for forgiveness. Let's stand this morning.